the suggestion was that we talk about the subject of the hiddenness of the next world or the tension between the fact that you can't see evidence of the next world explicitly and the fact that we are supposed to believe in it as a fundamental of Jewish belief <coughs> let's put it this way let's put it this way uh, a week or two ago a young woman came to speak to me who was considering conversion to Judaism or is considering and she had an intensive religious background in her own in a religion that she began life in and now for certain reasons she wants to become Jewish now she asked me the following question where does it say in the Torah right, that there's a world after this where does it say it where's the scripture where's it written explicitly that there's a world after this and that that's a reward for what you do here now that's a, that's a good question because first of all it's a critically important question because if there's no world after this I mean if you could entertain such a possibility try and show this evening that it's not possible but if you would then really everything here becomes meaningless too because everything here is just a very very temporal and finite experience and if you can just sort of survive and you get to a situation where for eternity you aren't then really this isn't a problem and all pain will eventually come to an end we just suffer it long enough but at a more philosophical level not just an emotional level if this is just finite then philosophically it can't really have meaning because if it will eventually culminate in something that's nothing so then it can't have absolute meaning and that's the philosophical problem Of course, this is something that the secular West has completely overlooked. The secular Western philosophy is that this existence really is all that there is. They have a philosophy that is just an accidental version of some lower creature, just a, another edition of some kind of monkey that happened by accident and his life absolutely, in the absolute sense, is not really meaningful. That's what they say explicitly, that's what they teach. On the other hand, they do try to put across the idea that some sort of spiritual, or let's call it human, or civil rights, or values, or some sort of elevated qualities or aspirations are in place. Fairness and civil rights, and the rights of people to happiness and to self-fulfillment, and justice and truth and beauty, we certainly talk a lot about that in Western culture. But the truth is that if it's just an accidental version of an animal, then you can't really have a concept of truth or justice or beauty. Those things can't evolve by accident. If truth or justice or beauty or moral right and wrong are absolute qualities, that means if they are transcendent, then they must transcend. You can't... Are we together? It can't be a monkey one day and then be a different edition of a monkey the next day and suddenly have a system of absolute right and wrong if it wasn't there before and it, no one out there with it? anybody out there? does the microphone help? if the if a monkey doesn't have absolute right and wrong it means if one monkey in the jungle or one animal in the jungle kills another one for whatever reason 
And that's not right. We don't judge that as right or wrong. We just judge it as an absolute fact of existence. We don't call it right and wrong or beautiful or moral or immoral. So then when that monkey eventually becomes a monkey that looks like you or me, it can't now suddenly be an absolute quality of right and wrong that crept in from somewhere. That can't evolve. It's either outside the system or it's not. I mean, it's obvious. In fact, there are those who say that we're not even a more advanced version of some primitive animal. We're a degenerated version of some of them because they don't brutalize each other for entertainment, for money. They do only what's necessary. They're loyal to their inner functioning. <coughs> they never deceive. And we do those things. So it's debatable whether we're a more advanced or more regressed version of some other animal. But if any other animal doesn't have higher values, then we certainly can't have them. And yet they put those two things together. They say we're an accidental animal, which means you can behave as you want. You are an animal, but very uncomfortable with that idea. Western culture says, yes, but behind the scenes you have the same professors of anatomy and anthropology and other human sciences, natural sciences, who teach you very explicitly how you are just an accidental version of a lower creature, and those are the same people sticking their necks out for civil rights, endangering themselves politi politically and personally to stand up for people's rights as human beings. There's a complete contradiction in terms. The mystics would say that the reason they get involved in that contradiction is because intrinsically the Neshama knows that it's real as a human. It cannot be put into words. In scientific terms, you can only show what's common between us and monkeys in scientific terms. You cannot show by lab, laboratory experiments, scientific experiments. You can't show what makes us different from a monkey. You can't show that. But you certainly can know it with an inner knowledge. And it's that inner knowledge. I'll be much happier if you sit over here. Can you do that? If there is an if you have an inner knowledge that you're sensitive to about who you are, you know you're not a monkey, you know you're not an animal, that life is meaningful, there are higher values, there is a right and wrong. You can't, certainly can't prove those scientifically, but you certainly can know them. That's part of the philosophical issue. Then there's many other issues. If you want to look at it as this woman was, scripturally, let's say. So where, so does it or doesn't it say? Does the Torah say that there's an existence after this or doesn't it? And the truth is that explicitly it does not. There's no question about it. If you read through what they call the Bible, the Chumash, if you read through Chumash, you'll find that it does not talk about a world to come. Transcendent value, certainly. The existence of the Shaman, it's have certain details about what it means, but a world after this, especially as a reward, it does not say. It talks about reward. But the reward that the Torah talks about seems to be reward in this world. It says if you keep the mitzvahs, you'll have rain in its season and peace in your land, and a, a no sword shall pass through your land. There'll be social justice. It talks about all sorts of reward that seem to be very physical. Yes, you might say that allegorically they're talking about a higher existence, but they certainly don't say it explicitly. For that matter, if you look in the prophets, if you look in the Vim, not only in Chumash, if you look in the whole, what they call the canon, in the whole 24 books of, of Tanakh, you won't find there any explicit mention of a world to come. You'll find there predictions of a future state of being. 
which are specifically predictions of the messianic faith. You have many commentaries, mystical and other, who say that there is no prediction of a spiritual existence that we call the world to come. Why? The reason they give is because no eye has ever seen Hashem except yours. No eye could ever see into that transcendent face. Not, not even a prophetic vision could bring down a message of what it looks like over there. And therefore no prophet's ever able to prophesy and tell you what, it, not even in allegorical terms, not even Moshe Rabbeinu who says things as they exactly are, maybe even less, could the Chumash say, but even prophets who speak in allegory and Marshall could not speak of an existence that's a quantum leap different than this is. What are those prophecies? Those prophecies of the messianic faith. Messianic faith is a physical existence. There's no question about it. That almost all the commentaries that talk about it say that after the year 6000, or certainly, certainly by that day, if not before, will enter a thousand year phase that's messianic. That phase will be physical. There's no question about it. A thousand years of physical existence. Family life. Certainly there will be things, there will be revelation of tremendous transcendent energy. There will be things revealed on earth that never were revealed before. There's no question about that. And they'll be revealed to all. But the basic existence will be physical. There's no question when it says that swords will be beaten into plowshares and the lion will lie down with the lamb. So the Maral and other commentaries say that it means that it will happen literally in a physical sense. There will be certain transcendent supernatural sort of things that will be visible. The Mekdash will be built. There are opinions that it will be built in fire. To think about it in these three weeks. Basamiktash will be built in fire, other side will be built by us, maybe a combination will come down from above. Will it come up from here? Will we do it? But there's certainly a possibility that it will be built in fire. So some sort of transcendent experience. But more than that phase, what will be after the year seven thousand? After the messianic thousand years of physical existence ends, there's no prediction at all. Now, if we have a belief in Jewish, the Jewish system, if you read the Gemara, Torah Shabal the oral law, which is what makes us Jewish, and where we live as Jews, so we speak about the world to come all the time. Not only in the hidden Kabbalistic writings, where it's spoken about explicitly, but the Gemara also. The Gemara speaks about it. No question that we have as a rich element in our tradition. Wait till midnight, that's what really <laughs> There's no question that the, at the center of our understanding of the world is that there's an existence after this. Not only that, but we understand that it's the intrinsic, actual, essential, eternal existence. That this is just a fleeting instant that leads to that. We're not saying this isn't important. The Kabbalists explain that you can't get there except for this. This is the corridor, it says, that leads into the hall. You can't get there except for here. And not just that there's a requirement to go through this to get there, but that is built by this. Because what you are in the next world is just what you lived here. The next world is just a, an acutely accurate look at yourself. That's all it is, not some other existence. In fact, the mystics say that it will be painfully familiar to you. All it will consist of is the things that you did while you were here. Not the raw material that you were given, that you don't have. The body and the ability to act with the body, you don't have there anymore. That was given for here. But what you have is the sum total of what you did with that body and that potential to act. That every action you did that overcame some weakness in your character, let's say, and you managed to overcome it. So you experience that millions and millions of times over and over and over, and each time it's a greater ecstasy. 
And every time you hurt someone's feelings, you live through that moment again, but this time feeling the pain. Again and again and again, and in full view of everyone else, by the way. Not only the pain, it's also the embarrassment, the indignity of it. Completely exposed. That's what the next world is. Just a... So we talk about it, we certainly talk about the next world. Now, if we talk about the next world as part of Jewish belief, why doesn't it say so in Chumash? That's the problem. Why, if you read through the five books of Chumash, does it not speak about the next world? I mean, if there's anything that's important to speak about, it should be that. If there's one thing that's important, it's the purpose of everything, where, where, where you're going, would you, to, would you take on a worker, or would you engage yourself as a worker to an employer, and tell you what's going to be the, the deal, the dispensation at the end of the day? The Torah is full of your obligations as a worker. You have to do these mitzvahs, these and these and these and these and these and these and these details. And the punishments are thus and thus. And what's it all for? Why doesn't the Torah talk about it? Why does it limit itself only to the reward that happens in this world? So it'll be rain in its season. So it'll have some have nice weather. And things will be happy and peaceful. But it's finite. And a lifetime's finite. Surely a spiritual system that's based in a transcendent reality should... Surely everything should drive towards a transcendent existence, and surely it should say so. It's not nitpicking about a detail. This is everything. The eternal existence that's permanent, that's what you really are. Everything that you're working for in this temporal phase, temporary phase, what you surely should speak about that? You have a question? A basic question, isn't it? We also know that everything must be in the Torah. You can't say, well, it was handed down by tradition. We know that the Torah is absolute. It means it contains everything that there is, even though it's a finite set of words. Just so much ink on so much parchment. But in that finite set of words is contained all transcendent wisdom. It's no problem. It's no problem. Don't You shouldn't ask the question, how can you have a finite set of Instructions. How can you have a finite document that contains material greater than what could be fit into it? That's a separate question. I heard recently, in the name of Rav Simcha Vassim, and I didn't hear this from him, one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard, is that someone once asked him, he was sitting at a, he was sitting at a shoe that he was giving to beginners. He's well known for speaking to absolute beginners with no Torah background at all. So one of the giants of this generation, Viano, is 92 years old, and he's chosen to speak to absolute rank beginners because he has a gift of being able to transmit things without needing any prior, you don't need any background, you don't need to be able to refer to classic sources. He can put things in first principle terms. He's coming out next month. South African. It's an opportunity you can't afford to miss to meet someone like that. So he's sitting at a shoe and he said that the Torah, although it's finite in size, let's say, in its written form, but it contains everything that could be. Much, much more than what theoretically, what seemingly could be coded in to that much space. So one of the beginners asked him, he said, Rabbi, how is it possible to fit something big into something small? How could you take something, how can you tell us that the Torah contains everything? It's a finite document at that level. How could you fit in it something larger than it? Not a bad question. So he thought about it for a few minutes and he said to him, Think of a boat. So the student says, Yes. He said to him, Think of a big boat. He said, Think of a ship. Think of an ocean liner. So the student said, Yes, he's thinking of it. He said to him, How did you get such a big ship? 
into your mind. <laughs> so we don't have a problem with that which is transcendent or larger, let's say, spiritually fitting into... That's not a problem. Could be mentioned. Could be mentioned. At least the tip of the iceberg could be mentioned, the reference. So we have a tradition in the oral law that, of course, since the Torah contains everything it is certainly hinted at, that means it is referred to in the Chumash, but in hidden form. In hidden form. The Gemara says in a famous section in Tehrelech and Sanhedrin, other places also, the Gemara analyzes the logic of the existence of another dimension. There the Gemara specifically speaks more about the resurrection. But it's dealing also with all of transcendent existence, and it brings proofs, or let's say sensitive indica- indicators from the physical world, and sensitive indicators from Torah, meaning that it seems from the Gemara that if you look at the world sensitively, you can see evidence that there must be that which transcends the world. And if you read Chumash sensitively, not explicitly, but if you read between the lines, so then you'll see clues that show there must be another existence. For example, the Gemara has many, many proofs over there. It's a beautiful thing to, beautiful section to go through in detail with regard to this subject. There the Gemara says, for example, it says, it says, the zona ha'om that this nation will be... Oh, it says, You will lie with your forefathers. And this nation will arise. That's what Hashem says to Moshe Abed. You will lie with your fathers. means you will pass away from the world. And then this nation that you've led will arise and begin to go astray, let's say. That's what it says. So the Gemara says, you don't read the verse that way. You know, we have a tradition that you can read Chumash anyway. The words, as they are printed, have no punctuation. So you can start and stop anyway. In fact, there's a tradition that even the letters were compressed originally into one string of letters. And it's a tradition we have where to separate the letters into the form that we have now. But you could have separated the letters in a, in a different way and had another story. So there the Gemara says, you should not read the verse that you will lie with your forefathers, pause, and this nation shall arise. You should read the verse, the shachafto imavosechavakam. You will lie with your forefathers and arise. See? If you read the verse that way, which is quite legitimate. There's no punctuation either way. If you read the verse that way, it means you will lie with your forefathers, pass away, and then arise. So you, you might say, well, you don't have to read it that way. And then the Gemara quotes a number of sources in Chumash that are ambiguous. That means in a hidden sense, you certainly can see it. But explicitly, it does not say. Then the Gemara shows that from the physical world, you can learn the same thing. The Gemara says that, brings an example there of... Uh, a number of phenomena that are interesting. It says, for example, you have a certain creature in the, in the world, most probably referring to something that we understand to be, let's say, a worm, some sort of caterpillar, something like that. Then the Gemara says that you have this creature that is um, earthbound. It's dark, it's blind, it lives under the earth, it moves very slowly, it has no natural beauty, it's uncolored. And when this thing dies, it disintegrates. The way it dies is that it spins a cocoon, and it crawls into that cocoon and it becomes a gel. It becomes a liquid disintegrated mass. Then someone explains that if you look at it at that stage, you would certainly decide that this is the natural way of the world, that it is a creature with life and then it disintegrates. But the truth is that if you watch that shapeless, formless, translucent material in the cocoon, it slowly starts to take shape and it comes out a butterfly. That's what the Gemara says. That's remarkable. A butterfly is exactly the opposite of what it once was. A butterfly lives in the air and not on the ground. It is light and beautiful, diaphanous, ephemeral creature, exactly the opposite of what it was before. 
Of course, if you speak to an evolutionist, they'll tell you, yes, well, after a couple of million years of crawling around as a worm, you know, one of them, you know, if you wait long enough, these things happen. So, you need your head red if you, if you think that way. Then you can't miss the significance. What the Gemara is telling you is that if only you're sensitive, you have here a most beautiful indication of an earthbound existence with tremendous limitation, going through a phase after disintegration that looks in every way as if it's going to end in complete disintegration, entering a phase that's exactly the opposite of what it was before. There are much more simple ways, if you're a biological engineer, there are much simpler ways to ensure the survival of a world and have to have it mutate through being a butterfly. You know, if you want to go into the statistical probability of that happening by accident as a solution to a life cycle problem, that there aren't the kind of statistics to express the probability of that having been the accidental. Of course, it depends how you wish to look at it. It's only a hint. The Gemara says it's not a proof because, after all, it's only a worm, it's only a butterfly. But anyone sensitive to this kind of message in the world. But it's not explicit, you have to be sensitive. The Torah expects you to be sensitive to see things correctly without the vested interest. The Torah understands that you will see things correctly if your mind is tuned correctly. I think I mentioned it here once before. Rabbi Desla was once giving a shear about tzitzis. And someone at the shear obviously was relatively new. I think it was a businessman. Someone who perhaps hadn't had much background in Torah. So Desla was explaining that the, the silt the the blue thread that you have in your tzitzis, we don't, we're not going to have it now. We don't have the color. But you had originally, and we will have him in Hashem, you have a blue thread in the tzitzis. So the Gemara says, Gazal, we say that the blue thread is the color, it reminds you of the sea. And the sea reminds you of the sky. And the sky reminds you, you look at the heaven, reminds you of Kisei Akobe, the throne of Hashem's existence. And that reminds you about Hashem. So that's why we wear tzitzis. That's why we have a blue thread. Because by process of association, it will make you think of spirituality. You'll see the color. The color will remind you of a similar color to the ocean. The ocean will remind you of a similar color, which is the color of the horizon or the sky. That will remind you of Hashem's throne in the spiritual world. So by a process of association, you will think of... So this, this man said to Rabbi Desla, excuse me, do you really mean to say, do you, know, do you really think that a person will make that, that, that? That's a direct association? Because a person sees a color, you'll think of this, and that'll make him think of that, and eventually he'll come to be thinking of spirituality. Isn't that a bit far-fetched? So Rabbi Desla said to him the following thing. You know, it says that a man shouldn't look at certain women's garments, certain items of clothing of women, even if they're not being worn. Why? Because by association, you'll come to think of things that he shouldn't think of. He said to the man, he said, do you understand that? So he said, of course, it's no problem. <laughs> so Rabbi Desta said to him, you see an item of clothing and that's already going to make associations in your mind that you shouldn't... Yeah? He said, so Rabbi Desta said, it depends where your head is. See? Depends where your mind is. If your mind's tuned, depends where your mind's tuned. If your mind's tuned on a certain way, there's anything going to remind you of that. And if you tune to spirituality, then a simple thread of color in your tzitzis of mitzvah are going to remind you of spirituality. The Torah makes a pre-supposition that you tune correctly. Once you tune correctly, the machine will work correctly. If you tune wrong, there's no hope. So it depends how you look at it. You look at a moth, a butterfly, and a worm, and a caterpillar, and a butterfly. So if you tune correctly, you'll be thinking this way. Then the Gemara goes on to show that logically it's not unrealistic. The Gemara says that the resurrection of the dead is more logical than the birth of a child. The original birth of a child we see happening in the world. The Gemara says is much more miraculous 
Then the resurrection, the Gemara explains that the reason it's more miraculous is because the marshal, the Gemara gives very interesting, the Gemara gives a marshal that says that the king once, if a king asked his servants to build him a palace out of wood and stone and they built a palace, that would be beautiful. But if he asked them to build him a wooden stone palace out of water and they built a palace of wood and stone using only water, that would be miraculous, marvelous, says the Gemara. That a person is resurrected is a person who is reconstructed out of elements that once were that person. But a child who is born is born out of an infinitesimal coding of genetic material that never was once a person that's much more miraculous. Reconstituting something that once was is much less miraculous than building something that never was. Now that may be true logically, but we don't see it that way because of force of habit. What we used to see is a child born. So when we see a child born, we say, Mazatov. But as I said before, you were sitting by the side of the cemetery and the ground started to shake and you saw a few bones reconnecting themselves to each other. You'd probably have severe emotional problems after that because... <laughs> because... Logically, you'd have to say to yourself that it's much more logical, it's actually less miraculous than watching the, mir the miracle, the mystery of a child being born. But we're not sensitive to that because we're not tuned sensitively. We're tuned to what we're used to. And the Gemara goes through a discussion like this. But at the end of the day, what you have is a discussion that shows that if you're sensitive to these things, it should make a person think that there's something that transcends this existence. But there's no direct exposure to that fact. We never saw it explicitly in the world and we don't see it written explicitly in Torah. That's the problem. That's the problem. So let's see if we can try and understand a little bit about why our faith has hidden this issue in this way. There's much more to say about the subject, each aspect of it, but let's at least try to see if we can work on that dimension. Perhaps we could start like this. What I'd like to do is I'd like to share with you there's a Kliyaka in Chumash that brings seven reasons. He summarizes an Abarbanel who brings seven reasons of why the Torah has not explicitly mentioned the existence of the next world. And it's a marvelous thing to see. If we get time, perhaps we'll try and go through the different facets of this jewel. First of all, before we start, and there must be many others too. There are many other aspects, I heard my Rebbe say, that there must be many other resolutions of this issue, as well as these seven that he's chosen. But one issue that perhaps is outside of these, but contained in all of them, is the following idea. This is not an explanation or a reason, it's just an illustration. I once heard him say that he heard from Rav Aaron Kotler himself. That's all. He said the following thing. Listen well. Why is the next world hidden in the Torah? Why, if you read the Torah, will you not find an explicit reference to the next world? Now, Kotler said like this, We know that our deepest tradition tells us that the Torah is a blueprint of the world. The Chumash, if you read carefully, is simply a design plan for the structure of the universe. Every single thing in the universe can be traced to a detail in Chumash, and everything you find in Chumash will be expressed in some way in the world. It's like an architect's blueprint 
and then the structure that's built from the blueprint, which is logical, there's a plan, and there's the structure that's built from the plan. And you could study it either way. You could study the Torah and you'll understand the world perfectly. Or you could study the world and you'll understand Torah. We have the tradition that Avraham Avinu, Abraham, studied the world intensely and came to fathom Torah. That's why he kept the mitzvahs, even though he never was given the Torah. And we have a tradition that King Solomon, Shlomo Melech, was able to study the Torah so deeply that he knew where things were hidden in the world. He used to send creatures to the bottom of the sea to bring him back certain things that were hidden. He knew where they lay without ever having seen them because he had studied the blueprint. An engineer can look at the working drawings of a machine and know how it works well, or he could take apart the machine and understand how the draftsman would have drawn the pictures. could do it either way. Step one. Step two is, whenever you have a working drawing, you have a plan, and then you have a structure, the one must reflect the other perfectly. That's the idea, after all, of having a plan and then building according to the plan. So you'll not find anything that's out of place. Anything in the plan must be exactly that way in the structure. So God says the following thing. Since the next world is hidden in this world, it must be hidden in Torah. Since the next world you cannot see through the eyes of human existence, that means living in the world without looking into Torah, no matter how you try, you will not perceive explicitly, cannot see the next phase. There's no way that it could be written explicitly in Chumash because, are we together? If it were written explicitly there, if there was a sentence, if there were a sentence stating explicitly some detail of the next world, then it would be visible in the world. That's what he said. Very, very wonderful, beautiful idea. Of course, what's behind that thought is that it couldn't be. If it could be said in so many words explicitly, then it could be revealed in some finite dimension. And the whole thing about the next world is that it has no finite dimension. It's a transcendent level. So not only would you be revealing something, but you'd be making it, you, would, you would be destroying its existence. If you mentioned it explicitly, you would be making it possible to be represented in a physical structure. In some aspect of the cosmic structure, it would be, you could apprehend it, which means it's not transcendent. If it's amenable to human perception, which is finite, then the thing itself must have an aspect of the finite. And since the point about the next world is that it's not, so it could not be mentioned in Torah. That doesn't answer the question of why it had to be that way in the first place, but that's a description of the reality. Another aspect, another facet of the same idea, is that the reason we don't see it in this world in the first place is because you wouldn't have the freedom of choice, even if you could see it, you wouldn't have freedom of choice for your own moral actions. If you saw the consequences of all action, if you saw your existence in the next world as consequence of actions that you performed here, and you saw that every misstep you made here was represented by eternal pain, who would put a foot wrong? And after all, this phase is here only to exercise your free will, and so the ultimate level has been hidden here. It's part of the idea. The Kiyaka says the following thing. Let, let, let me share it with you. I don't know if we'll have time to go through the whole thing. Let's, let, me, let me try to summarize as I can. He says here that he is intending to, um, to summarize a section in the Babanel who brings seven of these reasons. This is worth looking through for anybody who has some Hebrew, just to see a model of the ability to summarize. He says that I will take his words and try my best to summarize them for you and give you the essence of the idea. And remarkable, in a very few short paragraphs, he summarizes the essence of seven very, very deep, very deep ideas about the hiddenness and the 
potential revelation of the next world in this. I'm going to try to unsummarize it for you. He says this. First of all, he says that the reason I wish to do this for you is because this is on the verse in Chumash that says, I will walk among you, in amongst you, and I'll be your Hashem. And you'll be my people. On that verse, that Hashem says He'll walk among us, which means in this, in this existence, this level, physically, He will find a way to be among us, put that spiritual dimension into the physical. On that verse, He comments like this. He says that there are people, many people who say, that mitzvahs do not have the power to be represented in the spiritual world. That means, the reason that the Torah says that reward will take place in this world, as it does, as I mentioned before, as a lengthy section in the Rambam quotes and explains, which he'll mention, that the Torah says that if you observe the mitzvahs, you'll have peace and rainfall and everything, wealth, prosperity, certainly talking about this form of existence. So there were those detractors of the Torah who said, that the, the Torah only speaks about reward in this world because Hashem's mitzvahs only have the power to earn reward in this world. But they don't have transcendent ability. After all, they're only physical actions. When you do a physical action, you take from your pocket a coin and give it to someone who needs it. Or you smile or say a kindly word with the muscles of your mouth to somebody who needs encouragement. So a physical action could be represented spiritually by a physical consequence. That makes sense. But to tell me that a physical finite action could be represented in eternal transcendent terms, that doesn't make sense. And the proof of it is the Torah. The Torah says, if you do my mitzvahs, you'll have rainfall. Your crops and your flocks will be plentiful. But the Torah does not say you will have eternal existence in the next world. That's a proof. That's Hashem himself admitting that his mitzvahs do not have transcendent power. That's what these people said. You could hear the logic of such a claim. You could also hear that it comes from a vested interest. It does not come from a seeking for the truth, but that's what they said. So Kliyaka says that I wish to show you that this is not true. That, that the mitzvahs are expressed in the Torah as generating reward in this world, whereas we really know that they generate reward in the next world. Albeit that they generate reward here too, but that's not the point. Or at least there's a greater point that they generate reward in the next world. He wants to show why the Torah expresses the reward of mitzvahs in this world, and why that's not a disproof of existence in the next world. And woven into this question, of course, is the idea of why the next world is hidden. This is where it's hidden. And the Torah speaks about the ultimate consequence of mitzvahs, it only speaks about this world. Surely that's where the reward. After all, we contracted here as workers. The 613 mitzvahs are the wages that we pay. We live a lifetime of mitzvahs and suffering. And work on ourselves. And the work on ourselves yields a reward. So why does the Torah express the reward only in finite terms? That's the problem. Both questions intertwined. So these are, this is what he says. The first opinion. Translate loosely and summarize. Or at least try to explain a little bit. It says this. The first opinion is that of the Rambam. The Rambam's opinion is as follows. I don't want to devote too much time. Each one is a discussion in its own right. But briefly, the Rambam says this, that where the Torah talks about the consequences of mitzvahs as being prosperity in this world, the Torah is not talking about reward in the first place. The Torah is talking only about consequence. That means, when the Torah says that if you keep my mitzvahs and you serve me as I wish, you will have fruitful plenty and bounty in your world. Said the Rambam, that's not reward. 
That's just the consequence. Why is that the automatic consequence of mitzvahs? Because if you do the mitzvahs and live the way Hashem wants, so of course He gives you the wherewithal to continue doing that in, a, in an efficient fashion. If you do His mitzvahs and you treat people, each other, and Him the way you should, so He's happy with your behavior. So He extends your expense account. All this means, the only reason we get rewarded in this world is an expense account so that you can do the job you've been sent here to do. The Chobetz Chaim used to give an analogy to make it clear, something like this, he used to say along these lines, when a businessman, when a business sends out a representative to go and make sales, wherever he sends, wherever the business sends out this representative, so there are two levels on which the representative gets paid. Isn't that correct? He first gets an expense account so he can do the job, isn't that? They pay his fuel, they pay his accommodation where he has to go, they don't mind investing in him, what they have to invest in him, so he brings home the deals. But that's not his wages. That's not his wages. That wouldn't be, a person wouldn't work for that. All he's being paid is the wherewithal to carry on working. That's not reward. Reward is what you're left over with at the end of the day. After you've brought home all the deals, so at the end of the month they give you a salary. There are two ways you get paid. Says the Chobetz Chaim, that's how we are in this world. We get an expense account and that's this world. Once you're sent down here to do Hashem's mitzvahs and run the cosmic structure the way He wants, so then He pays you with an expense account. You behave correctly, so you have everything you need. Why shouldn't you have peace and wealth and fruitfulness? Why shouldn't you have all those things? Of course, if you stop doing the job, they cut back on the expense account. If the, if the representative goes out on the road and it brings out many deals, if he uses the expense account to eat all the caviar that he can, and stay, yes, in the best accommodation, doesn't make any deals, so no company's going to keep dishing out the expense account. They're going to cut it back, and eventually, of course, they may stop the account altogether. That's what the Prophet Khan said. That's the idea. So says the Rambam, that when the Torah says that you'll be paid out in this world, not payment, that's just my expressing my happiness with the fact that you are serving me correctly, so therefore you'll have everything you need. Why shouldn't I want you to have a peaceful existence in this world? And if the Jewish people live correctly, so then there'll be a world of peace. There's no question, there's no problem, why not to suffer here? But of course, if you're not bringing home the deals, if you're taking the expense account and using it for your own, Meshkirch of Honovich, I think, used to say that the expense account is like, in one way, it's like the honey that the mother spreads on the bread. The mother's not interested in the honey. She wants the child to eat the bread. The child's not interested in the bread. He wants to eat the honey. So the mother understands the child. She spreads a thick layer of honey on the bread. And the child eats the bread to eat the honey. The child's happy with the honey. The mother's happy that he's eating the bread. Uh, what he used to say, but a schlechter kind licks the honey off the bread. <laughs> when the Jewish people are sent down here and they accept the expense account and don't bring home the deals, then he gets upset. Then he gets upset. He only gives the honey that you should be able to generate the bread and butter level. There are many, many consequences. The Chavetz Chaim used to say that a person should live simply in this world because if you run a rich expense account, they expect you to bring home valuable deals. But if you live simply, they may let you off. You see, if he stays in the best accommodation, this representative and he brings home a very small deal that hardly balance expenses, the company will not be happy with him. But if he stays in very simple accommodation and he spends very little, they might tolerate the fact that he doesn't generate much income for the company. 
That's why the Chovetz Chaim said you should live very simply. He used to tell the story of a young Jewish boy who was regimented in the Russian army. He had no choice. And that battalion was to put on a parade, a um, military pageant, military parade for the Tsar. So they drilled for weeks until they had it down to perfection. And on the morning when the Tsar was due to come and watch the parade, he was late. And the officers were standing in the hot sun with all the troops on parade at attention. And the Tsar was late. So after they got a bit impatient and they thought maybe he wasn't coming, they left the men on the parade ground. And the officers went off to the officers' mess and they started drinking vodka and eating caviar. They used to live in style. While they were busy having a breakfast of luxury, the Tsar arrived. And he found all the men on parade with no officers. So he said to the men, Is anyone here who knows how to drill these troops? And this young Jewish boy stepped forward and he said he thought he could. So the Tsar watched while this battalion went through its paces perfectly. While this was happening, the officers ran out and stood there, terribly embarrassed and disgraced, watching this whole parade progress without them. And at the end of the parade, the Tsar turned to the senior officer and he said, How much does this boy cost me a day? The officer said, two copics a day. And he said, how much do you cost me a day? You're not worth it. You're not worth the price that I spend on you. I can get the job done cheaper. Chavetz Chaim used to say, that's the way Hashem looks at us. Chavetz Chaim didn't used to have backs to his chairs. He used to sit, he had a bench at the side of his table. And have backs to his chairs. People used to be amazed by the simplicity of how he lived. When I questioned him about it, he said, you know, worried maybe he wasn't bringing home enough deals for Hashem and maybe he wasn't living up to what was expected of him Chancellor simply so they couldn't criticize him for having spent more than he was generating that's the idea so let's summarize this opinion of the Rambam is that the Torah speaks about reward does not mean reward it's simply a what's called Yehudim of Elamazeh the let's say incentive or payout in some way, but not reward, which is simply an expense account, and the Torah is not speaking here. The Torah is not speaking here about reward in the next world. That no man has seen, that that could not be described. It's not because the Torah is talking about your reward as such, is this reward. It's not reward at all. First opinion. There's an aspect to this which is fascinating and beautiful, that's woven into this explanation of the Rambams. The Kliyaka talks about it. See if we can try and express it. I don't know if we're going to get through all seven. He says this. Just to try and hear this very sensitively. Everything that's written in Torah is true at all levels. Let's understand. Everything that's written in Torah is written for a purpose. Not only is it true factually, but it's written for the purpose that you must know that thing. If not, it wouldn't have been written. Are we together? In other words... There's nothing in Torah, that you hear this well, there's nothing in Torah that's written because it's nice to know. That means, everything that's written in Torah is a blueprint for something that's real in the world. But on top of that is a layer that it must be written what's called la'alocha. That means there must be a lachic outcome of everything that's written in Torah. There's nothing that's written in Torah because it's, Hashem wants you to sort of know it because it's nice to know. Everything that's written you must be able to act on. Everything must have a way of being able to be expressed in the world. In fact, so much so that the commentaries expend tremendous energy to explain the whole book of Genesis, the book of Bereshis. What exactly do you have to do because of the book of Bereshis? In the beginning, Hashem created the heavens and the earth. What exactly do I have to do about that? 
And then Mephoshim explained in great detail. Rashi explains carefully that the book of Brashis was not supposed to be there. The Torah should have only started from HaChodesh HaZelachem, the first mitzvah. The Torah is a book of instruction. What you must do. What the terms of your service are. The non-Jews will one day come to you and say that you stole the land of Israel. Because we lived there first. Yes, we lived there first. It's our land. I mean, in case you haven't heard this claim. Yes, it's our land. Canaanite inhabitants lived here before you got here. So there's a prior claim. And what will the Jews say to that? A Jew shouldn't turn around and say we were here first. It's not true. We weren't there first. I, I'm not saying that those who say they're here now were there first. They certainly weren't there first. We're not talking about that. But there were those who were there first. We certainly weren't. They were living there before we were. Before we were anything. So a Jew is supposed to say to a non-Jew who says that, then Rashi writes it out in Kumash. He's supposed to say, Hashem made the world in the beginning. It's His world. He gives it to whom He wants and He takes it away from whom He wants. You hear that? They lived immorally. They lived abominably. So He took it away from them and gave it to us. It vomited them out the land. And, gave, and He gave the land to us. You hear that? So because you have to act on that information, the Torah writes it. And there's many other reasons. It's called Derech Eretz. The book of Brashis is a way of how to live. What mitzvahs do you have in the book of Brashis? Very few. Very few. And even those that you have are repeated later in Sinai. We don't even do circumcision, bris miller, because it says that Avram Avinu did it in Brashis. The Rambam's quite careful to explain that we only do it because it was repeated later in our covenant at Sinai. So even those mitzvahs that have their origin in Brashis, we don't do because of that. So you have a whole book, one whole fifth of the Chumash, talking about the origin of the world. So the answer is, many answers. One of them is, Book of Bereshis is it's how to be a man, how to be a human being. How Avram Avinu lived, his integrity, his loyalty, his level as a human being. That's our forefather. Yitzchak, his strength. Yaakov Avinu, his middle of truth. From these you learn how to be a human being, because Torah doesn't begin till you're a human being. But certainly, it's an aspect of Torah that you have to act on. You have to act on it so strongly that you can't begin to act on anything else until you become a man that way. Derech Eretz, Kadmul Torah. First comes Derech Eretz, then comes Torah. But everything in Torah, whether it's Brashis or whether it's any nuance of anything, must have some application in the world. Now, imagine, imagine what it would mean if the Torah stipulated the reward. Can you feel that? Imagine if the Torah stipulated that there's a world after this, that the reward that's given to a person in this world is the next world. Let's say the Torah stipulated that. It explicitly mentioned the reward. You know what it would mean? It would mean this. We have an idea. It's quite clear in Big Always. In fact, it says that the first breakaway movement from the Jewish people began because of a misunderstanding of this statement. There's a statement that says like this. Be as servants who serve the master, the master not for a reward. Be like slaves who serve the master. You should be like servants who serve, not for receiving a reward, but out of love for the master. A person loves someone he wants to do for him. Do it as an obligation, do it as an act of love. Don't do it for the reward. It's not mercenary. Our relationship with Hashem is not supposed to be a mercenary relationship. It's true we have an idea that if a person hasn't yet reached a level of selfless devotion, on which he wants to do things for love of Hashem and because they write only, he should frighten himself. She should frighten herself with the idea that you should do it out of fear. There will be a punishment. Sure, you should start that way, but that's not ultimate. When a person loves someone in a relationship, in a marriage or a relationship, he wants to do for that person 
certainly would like to reach a level where he feels the depth of affection for that person that he'd like to do for that person because of what that person means to him. And because this is what's deserved and this is what's correct, not because it'll be very unpleasant if he's unfaithful. Does a person conduct himself, himself faithfully? As far as that's the question in the first place, does a person conduct himself faithfully? But the point is, does a person conduct himself faithfully because it will be unpleasant otherwise? Because the door will be locked when he comes home? Or he'll be rejected or some other unpleasant consequence will take place? The reason a person conducts himself with loyalty and integrity and faithfulness is because it's correct. But it's certainly good enough to start with fear of the negative consequences just to get you there. But the ultimate level of service is to do it because it's correct. Explains the Rambam, explains the Kiyaka and the Rambam, and others explain like this also, the most wonderful, beautiful idea. If the Torah wants you to serve, not for the reward, it may not mention the reward. If the Torah mentions the reward, and everything mentioned in Torah you have to act on, does it not mean, would it not mean that you have to do it for the reward? Isn't that correct? There's nothing in Torah that's free information. That's just information. Everything Torah, in Torah is, you're expected to act on. Now if the Torah said, do these and these mitzvahs, and then the Torah said, there is a reward for doing these mitzvahs, would it not mean that you're employed to do the mitzvahs for that reward? On the contrary, it would mean that you have to do them for the reward. Can you feel that? If the Torah stipulated, it would mean that I want you to do them with the consciousness of the reward, because I'm putting the consciousness of the reward into your mind by stating it explicitly. You feel that? And since the Torah wants you to do these mitzvahs not for the reward, it cannot mention the reward. Now you have a chance to act without the consciousness of reward. You can show someone your manifesto when they ask you for your contract. Yes, where's the contract your boss signed with you? You show them the contract, you signed at Sinai. You take out the contract and it says, I'm obliged to do this and this and this and this and this for you. What does it say you'll do for me? You'll give me an expense account to keep going. Yes, long, happy life with everything I need. If we do it as a nation, by the way, that's not individually. If we do it as a nation, we'll get to that later this time. Next year. <laughs> if you act correctly, you have an expense account. But where does it say in the contract? that there will be a salary at the end of the day doesn't say so. So why am I doing this? Why am I keeping up my end of the contract? Because I'm obliged. I have a sense of obligation. Because I love him. Because I want to do it for him. But not for the reward. If the contract contained a mention of the reward, you couldn't hide that from the person who's asking you to see your contract. You'd have to show him. And of course, you, you know, you'd, you'd say quietly, you'd say, well, of course, he pays me out with eternal ecstasy. I mean, but I'm not doing it for that. There's a question I ask on the Rambam. He says in one place, very, 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 very subtle and beautiful point. I heard this from my Rebbe. It says that the Rambam lists the 13 articles of faith. You, I'm sure you're familiar. In every Siddur of the Shachris, it's printed that there are 13 articles of the Jewish creed. 13 articles of faith. What's called the Yud Gimel Ikri. The 13 main points of Torah. The Rambam explains they're not the main points at all. There's no main point. Everything's essential. But nevertheless, I'm not going to go to that now, there are 13 things that are defined or delineated by the Rambam as being what we call Ikrim, or in some sense, principles. Now, when the Rambam lists the principles of faith, he mentions reward and punishment. There's no question about it. He mentions reward and punishment. Reward and punishment means real reward and punishment, eternal reward and punishment. He mentions it. You hear that? That means that when a Jew, if you open the Siddur of the Shachris and you read through, I believe with perfect faith, yes, that Hashem exists, that He's one, that His prophets are true, that Moshe Rabban is the head of all prophets, etc., that the Mashiach will come, that the dead will be resurrected. 
There's one over there that says that Hashem rewards and punishes those who observe and disobey respectively His will. Of course, the Rambam writes it because it says so in the oral tradition. The Rambam, yes, it doesn't say it in Chumash, but it's certainly a part of Jewish belief, as we said. What's fascinating is that when the Rambam lists the 13 reasons for which a person may lose his share in the next world, right? listen, listen well to this. The, the, the commentaries explain that when the Rambam lists the 13 articles of faith, the question is, where did he get them from? You won't find anywhere in Chumash that there's under 13 things underlined. You don't find a Sefer Torah that's highlighted or underlined 13 things. You won't find that. So how did the Rambam know that these 13 things were fundamentals? If you read the Gemara, you won't find any reference to 13 articles of faith. In the whole of the oral law, in the Gemara, you will not find any reference to 13 things that are primary. You won't find that. So where did the Rambam get them? So unfortunately, explain like this. There's a place in the Gemara that does not list 13 articles of faith, but it does list 13 reasons for which a person might lose his share in the world to come. That means there are 13 mitzvahs, rather, 13 transgressions, 13 categories of negative behavior that are so severe that if a person transgresses those and doesn't repent correctly, doesn't do tshuva correctly, dies without having corrected them, there's no share in the world to come. Kabbalistically, that's not quite true on that level, but not a nice discussion. But the point is that that's what it says. And those 13 things, says the Rambam, those 13 things for which a person may lose his share in the world to come, the Rambam phrases their positive aspects as the 13 articles of faith. That's where he gets them from. These are not more important than anything else, but they're the vital organs, let's put it that way. There's some organs in the body that are not vital. If they're damaged, you could survive. There's some organs that if they're damaged, you couldn't survive. So the Rambam lists those 13 areas without which you could not survive. And there, he phrases the 13 of these positively as fundamentals of faith that you must believe in. What's remarkable is, when he lists the articles of faith, he mentions reward and punishment. When he, when he lists the things for which a person might lose his share in the world to come, on that count he doesn't mention it. That means there's a parallel except for that. You hear that? That means that what you have to know is that there's reward and punishment. Your fear of losing the next world, that means your idea of service for, out of love or fear does not contain the idea of reward and punishment. Why did he not parallel those two as he does with the others? So the beautiful, beautiful explanation is just what we've been saying. The Rambam lists belief, knowledge of reward and punishment in the fundamentals of faith, because of course you have to know that. Of course it's a part of Jewish belief. It's all over the oral law to know that there's reward and punishment. Of course you have to know that. There will be terrible punishment for transgressions. Terrible punishment. And there will be tremendous, unbelievable reward for doing things. Of course you have to know that. But when it comes down to the fearsome description of how you can go wrong, there, he does not mention reward and punishment. Because if he did, you would be spurred and obliged to do it because of reward and punishment. When it comes to listing your obligations, we don't mention reward and punishment. We don't want you to do it because of fear and punishment. The Torah doesn't want us to do it that way. And the Torah doesn't want us to do it because we want the reward. So there it's not mentioned. In terms of what you should know, as articles of faith, as truth, certainly you should know about it. Beautiful idea. That means in every manifesto that we have, of our obligations as a Jew, we exclude mention of reward and punishment. We don't want that written in the contract. We'd be insulted if Hashem did that to us. He said, look, I want you to do this and this and this, and because I'm going to punish you and because I'm going to reward you. We don't want that. We don't want that. When a woman signs a ksuba, when she receives a ksuba from her husband, when a woman, when a couple make a contract of marriage, 
they do not say that we are getting married to have the most wonderful relationship with each other so that you will be rewarded by me in this and this and this way and if you break this agreement you'll be punished thus and thus that would m- make completely mercenary the most intimate of relationships you wouldn't do that and so the Torah doesn't do it with us I'll mention one more and I think we'll leave it there for this evening because we'll certainly not manage to get through all seven and it's a shame after the visiting the series that will be Mitzvah given here over the next couple of weeks by visiting speaker and others will try to continue this subject with your permission. Let's just, let me just mention one more in the few minutes that are left. The Kliyaka says like this. The second reason is that's the opinion of the Ibn Ezra. He says this. Very, very interesting idea. The Torah is given to everyone. And not to anyone specifically. The Torah is given to everyone, not to one specific individual. And the concept of the next world, one in a thousand wouldn't even understand. The concept of the next world is so abstract and so refined that not even one in a thousand could understand. A very rare individual who's capable of such abstraction. The level, the ability to think abstractly is limited. There's a limit to which each individual can go in his ability to conceive of abstraction. And since most people couldn't understand it, the Torah cannot mention it. Because since the Torah is given to all, it must be given at a common denominator, at the level of a common denominator that anybody who wants to can find it meaningful. How can the Torah be given? If you have a class of students, you must give to them material that you cannot give something. If you're giving something that's for all of them, you cannot give an aspect of what you're giving that only one could understand, or maybe not even one. One, in ma- one among many. Because it would then not be something that you're giving all of them. The Torah has been given to us at a level where each person, nobody can say that he couldn't understand. The next world is such a refined concept, it has such a powerful level of abstraction, that certainly most could not understand. And so the Torah would not give something that's not amenable to everyone's grasp. There's remarkable what's in this, by the way. Because it means that if you think there's something in Torah you can't understand, even Ezra says different. Because if you put your energy into it enough and track it down hard enough and, and apply yourself to it, you will understand it. Because it's been given at your level. He says quite clearly, since the diets of a human being, the inner knowledge of a person, finds it so difficult to picture, it doesn't mean literally picture because one may not, but since one may not even begin to approach some sort of image or vision, let's say, of the next world, because you're in a physical vessel, so therefore the Torah just keep away from something of a depth that would not be amenable to must. Either not to everyone, or certainly at least not to must. Erasmus once expressed this idea by saying that your level of ability, your ability to abstract is limited. If you show a child, if you want to explain to a child the concept of two, two is an abstraction. Two is a concept. A child, a young child, cannot understand the concept. Two ice creams or two pencils, he can understand. But he cannot understand the abstraction of the concept of two. No amount of explaining, no amount of patience or explaining will transmit that concept to him. Because he's at a level we can only understand the graphic representation of that. When he gets a little older, and he understands the concept of two and three, but A and B he won't understand. When he can understand arithmetic and work with it well, but algebra he couldn't understand. Because algebra is a higher level of abstraction. It happens to be more powerful. Because the more abstract the more all-encompassing and the more powerful, but the vaguer and the more difficult. A child who can work very successfully with one, two, three, and four, 
but he cannot fathom what you mean when you say A, a plus B. No amount of patience, no amount of sensitivity and explanation will help that child to grasp something beyond the level of abstraction that he's capable of at that moment. When he raises himself to a higher level of abstraction, he can grasp a more intangible abstract concept than he could work with algebra. But calculus, he won't understand. And everybody has a level of abstraction. Everyone has a limit to, beyond which he cannot abstract. And the danger at that level is that when a person reaches that borderline, that interface, with his own limitation of abstraction, what happens is he's not always aware that he's at the level of his own limits. What happens is sometimes a person does see pictures. A person does think that he grasps. But of course, he's not grasping at the next level. He's grasping the next level at his level, which means that it's been distorted to his level. And therefore, that is one of the reasons, as we mentioned here before, that Kabbalistic study is prohibited, or at least permitted only within certain bounds. Because if one studies something that one cannot grasp correctly, then one will grasp it wrongly. And especially if one doesn't have the knowledge or maturity of one's limits, to know one's limits, then not only will one function thanklessly and produce no results, but one may think that one is producing results and actually have an incomplete or an invalid concept of the most important area that has to be understood by a human being. And therefore, because of one's limitation of ability to abstract, certain things are forbidden. Along these lines, says Ibn Ezra, the Torah has chosen, Hashem has chosen to express only that which is amenable to the common level of ability to abstract. But that which is at a depth, a level of depth, beyond that, the Torah keeps hidden for those who know how to perceive the hidden. Who would not mention explicitly, would mention explicitly only that which could be apprehended at its explicit level. Finally, just to complete this idea, you have many times, many places that the commentaries express that the Chumash has to be understood by a six-year-old also. You'll see that everything in Chumash can be understood on a deeper level. When it says that Moshe Rabbeinu went up the mountain to a Kabbalist, it does not mean a man walking up a mountain. It may mean that too. And we have a Kabbalistic tradition that every deeper level, every level of increased depth that we have in Chumash may never contradict a more superficial level. So the more superficial level must always remain true. It's just adding depth in addition to the more superficial level. But nevertheless, the superficial level is always there and must be understood. So if a child reads Chumash when he's six years old, and he understands that certain physical events happen, he's just old enough to read. We start children at five. Five or six years old, the child reads Chumash. Isn't that remarkable? It means the Chumash has been given, Torah has been given, that it's amenable to the intelligence of a five-year-old. There should be nothing there that a five-year-old cannot understand. That's the testament. The deeper level is hidden so amazingly, that only when the six-year-old is a 16-year-old, will he begin to perceive that there's a, le a level beneath this one. When he's 26 year old, 26 years old, having spent those years correctly, refining his sensitivity, so then he'd understand that there's levels beneath that. And when he's 76 years old and so forth, he should understand that there are unperceived levels that are there, and they are expressly, they are stated in the words. He will see them in the words. The six-year-old would only see them between the words if you were able, or between the lines. But they become to seem more explicit to the more expert eye. The commentaries explain the most fantastic idea that the Torah hides itself so beautifully in this way, we'll finish with this, that it's not amenable to perception at all if you're not perceptive enough. Just try and illustrate that and we'll finish with this. The Gemara Megillah, there's a fantastic Gemara. Gemara Megillah says this. Gemara says a remarkable thing. The Gemara says that the Chumash, you know the Chumash was translated. 
you know, if you look in the Mikroas Kapelis, you look in most Chumashim, you'll find that there are at least two translations of the Chumash into Aramaic. When the Torah was translated into Aramaic, right, what's called the Targum, we have no record of any aberration. We have no record of anything strange happening. The Torah was translated, and every week a person is supposed to go through the Pasha twice, and the Targum once, in Aramaic. When Tanakh was translated, Nach, the prophets, the books of the, of the canon other than Chumash, when they were translated into Aramaic, it says there was an awesome earthquake that took place. 400 parses in Eretz Israel shook awesomely. There was a terrible disquiet of the world when, the, when Nach was translated. Why? Because it says that, the Gemara of Megiddo says, that when certain words were translated, certain passages in the prophets were translated, they revealed something of a hidden depth that would have been better not revealed. That means that they were written in such a way that they're concealed, and when you translate, you unfortunately have to reveal. You cannot translate exactly as the thing is, and so when you translate, you realize that there's something hidden here. And since some inner depth, some inner intimate depth of Torah that was fit to be hidden has now been revealed, or rather, there's now an indication that something was hidden here and is not so hidden anymore, so the land shook. The question that the commentaries ask is, why, when the Chumash was translated, did that not happen? Why was that not a problem? Why, when the Targum Unculus was translated, when the Chumash was translated into Aramaic, why was there no earthquake? How come it was possible to translate the Chumash, the Torah? The Torah has much more hidden depth, much deeper depth, and much more hidden depth than the, the Nachtas, prophets do. How come when this was translated, there was no problem? The Basman explained like this once. Very wonderful idea. The difference between Torah, Moshe Rabbeinu's prophecy, and Nach, the prophecy of prophets, the difference in level is this, that when the prophet translates, when the prophet writes down his words from Hashem, every single word of his, as is true with all Torah, has Kabbalistic depth that's infinite. Every word in Torah, no matter how simple it sounds to the six-year-old, has Kabbalistic depth of untold power. And beneath that level are more levels, and it's endless. When the prophet writes down his prophecy, there are certain things that he cannot write in such a way that the, all the depth remains hidden. He manages to use certain words. He has to use certain words. Yeah, the Gemara gives examples in Megillah, I think it is. He uses certain words that mean certain things, but when you translate them, there's no way to translate them literally. If you're going to translate, if you wish not to translate, you can skip over those words by just transliterating. You could just write the word as it is. But if you're undertaking to translate, you must translate. The prophet cannot cover his words so skillfully that when it comes to translating, he can hide a depth. In other words, let me make a graphic for you. Let's say you have a sentence. Now you translate that sentence in the Novi into Aramaic. So the first word you translate. The second, then you come across a word that the only way to translate that word is to reveal what its depth is. Is at least to reveal that something's hidden here. Because you cannot translate that word. There's no literal translation except for an indication that there's a hidden depth. The Chumash is written at such a level, the Torah itself, the Chumash is written at such an incredible level that every single word can be translated literally and you wouldn't realize, the way he put it was like this. The Kabbalists say that the Chumash is what's called Nesta. Nesta. Nesta means hidden completely. Every word has a Nesta. Every word in Chumash has an explicit meaning and it has a Nesta meaning. Nesta means completely hidden. The depth is completely hidden. 
In the prophets, they don't talk that way. You know that? In the prophets, they use the word mechuse. Mechuse means it's, it doesn't mean hidden, it means covered. What's the difference between hidden and covered? So, Basman explained like this. I don't know if I should allow this to be recorded. But he said this. He said, when you go through customs, <laughs> when you go through customs, there are two ways to carry something that you shouldn't be carrying. See? One is to carry it in such a way that it's, you know, if it's sewn, in, if it's sewn into the lining, let's say, <laughs> that when you walk through, they can't, not only don't they see what it is that you're carrying, but they don't see you carrying anything. But if you walk through customs like this, <laughs> so then what happens is they don't see what you carry, but they see the bulge. Now they see it bulging. You know? The difference between those two is that the one has the depth hidden, but it also hides the fact that there's a depth there. The level called Mechuse hides something, but it can't hide the fact that there's something there. Nach is written on such a level that the Prophet manages to hide what he has to hide, but he can't also hide the fact that he's hiding something. But Chumash is written on such a level, isn't that wonderful? But Chumash is written on such a level that it hides the fact that it's hiding something. And therefore, yes, you could translate it simply in such a way that a six-year-old could understand. In Tanakh you can't do that. And therefore the Torah has to be given that way, and at an explicit level it certainly has the, the artfulness, let's say. It has that simplicity that it could be understand, understood meaningfully and as a Torah by a six-year-old. But that underneath that, the personal perception will be many levels that still and always need to be discovered.